That's a good story, right? It's romantic. It's got a lot of providence in it. It's, a, it's just a, it's a good story. But what is the point? Which is what I was asking myself last week as I'm trying to write a sermon on it. What's the point? What do we get from this, right? Well, for its original hearers and readers, these were Israelites threatened by the power of Egypt, threatened by the power of Babylon. They needed to know for certain that God would providentially care for and protect the line of the seed of the woman. You follow? The promise from Genesis 3.15 that God would send an offspring, a seed, who would crush the head of the serpent, who would deliver his people from sin and death. The promise made to to Abraham about Isaac and his offspring, that the whole world would be blessed and saved through this son. Israel needed the comfort that comes with knowing that God has it in hand and that whatever threats are to his plan don't stand a chance. But we know on the other side of the cross that the son of promise has come. God did protect his line. So Jesus, the seed of the woman from the line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah and David and so on. So as the New Testament sheds light on this Old Testament passage for us, what's the point now? How do we be good modern readers of this text? I want to suggest to you the point of this text in light of the rest of the Bible is this, that God will provide a bride for the son. And therefore, we can be hopeful and powerful evangelists. Now, there are a couple of premises that this theme is based on. So if that doesn't make sense to you, hear me out. Uh, we got to talk about them briefly. So first, I want to talk about the woman at the well. That's um, the first premise is that this is a betrothal story. So if you're reading a fairy tale and there's a damsel in distress, locked in a high tower, how's the story going to end? Come on, girls, you know this one. (laughs) It's going to be a prince to her rescue, a knight in shining armor. That's how those stories work. Or if you're watching a Western, right, and it's high noon, and there's a dusty street and a tumbleweed blows by, and two men stand face to face with their hands at their hips. Like, we know there's about to be a gunfight. That's how these stories work. If you're reading the Bible, and you encounter, and you see a man encounter a woman at a well, there's going to be a betrothal. That's how these stories work. It goes like this. There's four elements to the scene. Number one, man meets a woman at a well, right? Number two, the woman goes back and tells her family about the meeting. Number three, the man is invited back to the family. And then number four, there's an engagement, a betrothal. A marriage is arranged. This chapter has all of those marks in it. So we see that the servant has this seemingly chance encounter with Rebecca at the well. And then she runs back and tells Laban and her mother and father. They bring him back to the home and then a marriage to Isaac is arranged. That's how these stories go. But this isn't the only time we see this trope or type scene in the Bible. So think later in Genesis 29, we're going to see Jacob, who's Isaac's son, back in Haran, in this neck of the woods, and he's tired and sits down at a well and meets a woman named Rachel, who goes back and tells her father. And then they invite him back, and then a marriage is arranged. 
how it goes. Or Moses, Exodus 2, kills a guy in Egypt, bad idea, flees Egypt, gets tired, sits down at a well, and meets a whole bunch of women, the daughters of Ruel, the priest of Midian. And he saves them at the well. And so they run back and tell their father, Ruel, who invites Moses to his house, and then they arrange a marriage to Zipporah, one of his daughters. So we've got to get this this scene in our heads, the way that the Western showdown at high noon is in our heads. We've got to understand that this woman at the well scene lays the groundwork and points us forward to consider this in light of the rest of the Bible that plays this story out. That's the first premise. The second premise, I'm jumping conceptually here, I'm sorry. The second premise is that the church is the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. I am not the bride. We are the bride, collectively. Marriage between a man and a woman isn't the mold that then God fits his story into. It goes, oh, that was a good idea. I could really use that as an illustration. It's the other way around. Marriage is the shadow. And uh, it's the shadow of of a greater reality. Just like God was father before human parents existed, so marriage existed in the mind of God as a greater reality that human, the institution of marriage as we know it points to and images. So if we flip that ontology around though, if we, if we flip it around and make human marriage primary and church and Christ kind of theology secondary, then if we think about it very hard, it gets really icky really fast if we press that metaphor in. But if we understand that marriage and all the joy and all the beauty and all the intimacy of a marriage is a secondary picture of a greater primary reality, then we start to understand marriage's intimacy in its proper place as something beautiful. So that's the second premise that we've got to get under our belts, that to become a Christian is to become a part of a history-spanning, worldwide, collective bride of Jesus Christ. All right. Now these two premises, the woman at the well and the bride of Christ, come together in the Bible in John chapter 4. Do you know John 4? Jesus is traveling through Samaria, and he's hungry, so he sends his disciples off to find some food, and he sits down at a well, wearied from his journey, and he meets a woman at a well. And even though she's impure, shamed, shunned, outcast by the Jews, he offers her living water that can satisfy her real soul thirst. So she runs back to town. And she tells everyone about this meeting of the man at the well. She says, come and see a man that told me everything I ever did. And they invite Jesus back to town where he stays with them a while. Is that ringing bells? It's like the servant. It's like Jacob. It's like Moses. This is how these stories go. Except at the end of the woman at the well kind of trope, there is a betrothal. So is there one in John 4? Is there an engagement? Is there a marriage proposal? Yes. The episode of the Samaritan woman and Jesus was the son of promise opening the door wide for all the outcasts, all the sinners, 
all the impure, the shamed, the shunned. The woman at the well teaches us that we can be part of the bride of Christ. People like us. Not beautiful and pure like Rebecca was, but disgraced, shamed, stuck in our mess. In 2 Corinthians 2, Paul says, I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. So Paul, as an evangelist, is like the servant, betrothing us collectively to one husband, Christ. And we are made pure by his love for us. See, in ancient times, the bride and groom would be uh, betrothed, engaged for a long time. Now, I'm not a big fan of long engagements in our modern moment, but they had a different system. And their system was, we get engaged, and then it may be a year, it might be two years, but we are legally husband and wife, but we don't live together and enjoy the privileges of marriage. Right? So then, at the end of that long, waiting, yearning betrothal is a huge wedding feast. And then the husband and wife come and live together forever. That's what Revelation 19 is talking about. Revelation 19, quote, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So you are the bride of Christ. We collectively are his betrothed. Therefore, it's a very long introduction. I'm sorry. Therefore, I suggest to you this is a text about evangelism. So like the servant. That's right. A flourish with the page flip. <laughs> that's how I feel. Look, the servant is sent with incredibly good news to somebody who had no idea. They had, you know, she would have known, we've got this cousin Abraham who was weird and went off and we never saw him again. And so they don't know what's going on, just a vague, you know, I've heard his name kind of thing. So the servant shows up and goes, look, there's a son who was promised by God. He's the heir of everything. The whole world is going to be blessed through him and he's looking for a bride. He's an evangelist. He's got the best news there is. And if you follow Jesus and live after the events of Matthew 28, which is everyone in this room, where Jesus gives his great commission, then the servant's mission of giving that good news is your mission too. You are sent with the good news to find a bride for the son. Not so that the Savior can come into the world, right? He had to find Rebecca, not from the Canaanites, to preserve this line so that Jesus could be born. No, we do it so that the family of God can be fruitful and multiply in the kingdom of heaven until the Son returns and makes the whole world into Eden 2.0 for his bride. So now, as succinctly as I can, um, I want to look at how Abraham's servant went about his evangelism so that we can also be powerful, hopeful evangelists. We're going to look at three things the servant takes with him on this mission. So number one, the servant is armed with promises. He's armed with prayer. 
and he's armed with riches. So let's, let's just jump right in. Number one, the servant is armed with promises. Verse two tells us that the servant was the oldest of his household who had charge of all that he had. So maybe this is Eliezer of Damascus that we read about uh, a handful of chapters ago, maybe not, but we know he's been around with Abraham for a long time. He's proven himself faithful, which means he's seen firsthand God's faithfulness to Abraham. So the servant knew of the promise God made to Abraham, that he would inherit the whole promised land. He knew about the promise that Isaac would become a multitude of nations and kings would come from him and there'd be too many to count. He knew the promise that the whole world would be blessed through the offspring of Isaac. He had all that down. He went armed with promises to stand on. But before he left, Abraham gives him one more promise. Look in verse 7. Abraham says, The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. So what's the promise? God is with you. God's angel goes before you. What could stir up more hope and confidence in this mission than that? Than an angel walking ahead of you, paving the way for you. The express purpose of prospering your journey, making it successful, finding the son of bride. But now if you're a follower of Jesus on this side of the cross, you've got the same kind of mission, but you've got better promises. Bigger promises, sure promises in Christ. I'll give you two. First, you have the promise of God's personal presence. Not merely an angel, but Jesus, the Son of God himself, is with you. Matthew 28, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's the mission. Now here's the promise. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's a promise from Jesus for you to stand on, to take with you. What could give us more hope and courage for evangelism, sharing the good news of Jesus, than that? As we make disciples, Jesus is with you. As we baptize, Jesus is with you. Look, as you have awkward conversations trying to figure out how to bring Jesus up into something, Jesus is with you. As you blush because that was hard and you feel awkward, Jesus is with you. As you look someone in the eye and tell them that they matter to God, Jesus is with you. You have the promise of the presence of God as you go about this mission. The whole book of Acts in the New Testament is one long story meant to demonstrate to you that Jesus is not absent from this world. He's present in his people. It's, you know, written in our Bibles, the Acts of the Apostles. It would probably be better titled the Acts of the Holy Spirit of Jesus. That's what it's about. So what if we're socially awkward? So what if we don't have the right words? So what if we don't have all the answers? We have the promise of his presence. I'll give you one more. Acts 1.8, just before Jesus ascends into heaven bodily, he says, quote, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. 
We're in the ends of the earth. We're still in this promise. We're a long way from Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, but we're still in this promise. When you put yourself in Jesus' mighty hands, when you decide to follow him by faith, here's what happens. The Spirit of Jesus comes upon you, and the Spirit of Jesus fills you, and he stays with you. He makes his home with you. And then you become like a temple of God, a home for the Spirit. So when the Spirit comes, then you're not just filled with the presence of God. You are. God is never absent from you again. You're also filled with the very power that raised Jesus from the dead. You're filled with the power that is currently renovating the universe. What if we believed that? What's the purpose of this power? Acts 1-8 makes it really clear. The purpose of being filled with power from the Holy Spirit is so that we can bear witness to Jesus in the whole world. That's why you have the power that you do have in Christ. The message that we're given then to go out with hope and with power is that the Son of God is seeking a bride. But his angel doesn't just go before us. His spirit is in us. So we go armed with promises. Number two, we go armed with prayer. The servant is armed with prayer. In Genesis 24, verse 12, we see the servant of Abraham praying. I didn't look this up, but I think it's the first time we have a recorded prayer that someone prays in their own heart. A quiet, personal prayer. I think. Anyway, the servant prays, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, Please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. That's a good prayer. We should pray that prayer. The servant knows that if he's going to succeed on this mission, this long journey, 400 miles at least, from where Abraham is to Nahor, if he's going to succeed, he's going to need God's help. He's going to need it. So he doesn't go in his own strength. The servant doesn't trust in his ability to choose a bride based on his own criteria. He doesn't trust in how good he is with words or how many answers to big questions he has. He trusts in the God of Abraham. And he asks for God's help with specificity in prayer. Don't be afraid to get specific with God. Don't be afraid to ask. He's eager to help. But I'll also say, we don't need to to ask for signs anymore. He's functioning like asking for an oracle. Like when this happens, then I'll know. That's fine. We don't have to do that anymore. From Acts chapter 2 on, after the Holy Spirit himself personally fills his people with his presence, they never ask for another sign in the Bible. They don't need them anymore. You don't need them anymore because the Spirit of God is in you. The Spirit prays with you when you pray. The Spirit groans with you when your prayers are too deep for words. The Spirit prays on your behalf when you can't pray. You have the Holy Spirit himself. But if we think that we can go on this mission of good news without being prayerful, we're dead wrong. We just can't do this without the Lord. God has decided to govern this world 
through the prayers of his people. So there are people that will be saved because you prayed for them. Again, if we believed that, we'd be on our knees a lot more, me included. So what if every time we left our doorstep, walked out of our house, we, we prayed kingdom-centered, evangelistic, big, hopeful prayers? What if we prayed for the people that were lost, that we love, that break our, it breaks our heart when we think about them not knowing Christ? I know so many of you already do. What if we also prayed, just, oh Lord, grant me success today. Show steadfast love to Jesus. So we go armed with prayer. And number three, the servant is armed with riches. Did you catch that? Verse 10 says that the, master, or the servant took 10 of his master's camels. Seems like a small detail. It's kind of important because 10 camels is like a fleet of Rolls Royces. Very wealthy kind of signaling happening here. Right? You're going 400 miles saying, I'm rich. My master is very wealthy. But then it also says it took 10 of his master's camels. So this is just a taste. There's so much more. Abraham is very wealthy. And Isaac, therefore, is becoming very wealthy. You notice at the beginning of the story, the servant says, my master is Abraham. And at the end of the story, he says, my master is Isaac. This is the story of Isaac coming into his inheritance. Anyway, he takes the camels. Verse 22 then, we see that the servants also brought a pile of expensive jewelry. We see that twice he gives jewelry to Rebecca, and then he lavishes her and her whole family with more gifts later on after they choose to go with him, after she chooses to go with him. Uh, verse 10 or 11 says that he took a bunch of choice gifts. I mean, choice. I love that word. Like he's picking through the treasury going, this one's particularly beautiful. I'm going to take this one for, for the bride. This one's lovely, right? And then he puts them on her. Let's just note for a minute how dignifying that is. He decks her out like a queen because she watered his camels. Ten camels, after 400 miles, can drink 25 gallons of water per camel. The jars of that day held about three gallons of water. And the wells of that day were deep pits in the ground with spiral staircases that you had to walk down, fill your three gallons, and walk back up. I'm not good with math, but I think Rebecca was sweaty and dirty by the time he dignified her like a queen. There's something to that. Maybe if we looked to the servant's example, we wouldn't think of evangelistic messages as starting first with, you deserve hell. Maybe we'd think of starting with, you matter to God. And we start, we lead off with dignity. What if we tried that? I think it seems wise. So the servant dignifies her, and then he gives her a foretaste of his master's incalculable wealth. A foretaste. Do you realize that if you belong to Jesus by faith, then everything that belongs to the Son of God is yours. Ephesians 2, 4, 7, 2, 4 through 7. Numbers work that way. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7 give us a clear example of what some of these riches are. So 
We're going to read it in a minute. Paul explains here what a foretaste of the son's wealth is like and then what the feast will be like in the future. So let's read it. Um, I'll read it for us here. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Here's the feast. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The foretaste then of the riches that are yours in Christ that you have to offer to your neighbors and friends and family and co-workers who don't know God. The, for, the, the riches that you have to pass on are these. Mercy. Salvation from your sins. Eternal security. You can offer those to people. But if you can believe it, that's just a taste. Do we, I mean, do we believe that? I think that I actually function as if salvation from my sins is the end of my spirituality, of my walk with God. It's the whole point. It's not the point. The glory of Christ is the point. And if you believe that, that's why we say in the confession, what is the chief end of man? Do you guys know? What's the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's what we're talking about. Salvation is how you get to the feast, which will go on for eternity. Sorry, Nathan, I just hit your microphone with my flailing. <laughs> right. Where am I? Feasts and foretastes. Um, yes, that's it. Okay, so that's the taste. And the feast in the future that's coming is that Jesus is going to spend eternity lavishing his riches on his bride. On us. So if you find evangelism challenging, and I do, let me ask you and myself, do you know the riches of God? Have you tasted them? Do you know and cherish his mercy? Do you know what you've been saved from and at what cost? Do you know how secure you are in his love? Get your heart around these riches. Put on these bracelets and earrings. Feel their weight. And it's going to be hard to not tell people about Jesus. When I started praying about planting this church a couple years ago, I asked the Lord to give me a verse to cling on to for hope and courage and clarity. And he gave me two. Y'all know one of them is Psalm 127, 1. We know and talk about that all the time. But the other one is Matthew 13, 52. And here's what that says. It says, every scribe who's been apprenticed in the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a house. And he brings out of his treasury treasures old and new. Weird, right? Didn't make sense to me, so I spent a lot of time studying it. Here's what he's saying. If you were a student of Jesus, a follower, then you're like the lord or lady of a great estate that you've inherited. And in your great grand estate is this 
big vault, but the door is wide open. It's not locked. And inside that vault are the treasures that you have inherited, which is the incalculable, uncountable, unending, inexhaustible wealth of the king of the universe in your vault. Now your job as the Lord or lady of this great estate with free access to this vault is to walk in, bring some treasure out and share them with people. That's it. That's how the kingdom grows. And it says treasures old and new. So bring out the old treasures that you've loved, relied on, stood on. God was merciful to me when I didn't deserve it. Bring out those kinds of treasures and new ones. Bring out the new ones that delight you, that you're discovering as you're walking with Christ and fellowshipping with your brothers and sisters. Old and new. It's inexhaustible, guys. You'll never stop exploring the beauty of God together. All right. Ray Orland ending. That's it. That's my sermon. Um, <laughs> I cut the conclusion because it was really long. <laughs>